So I, I will never forget one of the most nerve-wracking days of my life. Uh, it happened when I was practicing law, and uh, I was headed towards my first jury trial. Now, up to this point, I had done a, a ton of landlord-tenant cases and traffic cases, but now I was doing like a real big boy trial. I was with my mother, and we were working together. Uh, she and my dad started a law firm over 30 years ago, and I'll never forget the feeling I felt walking to the room to pick a jury. I kept on hoping in the back of my brain that the other side would just offer us a really good deal so that we wouldn't have to go through with the trial. Now, I had done mock trials in law school, uh, but this was very different. Now, the reason this was so different was because there was so much stuff on the line. Uh, my client was an immigrant family, and they got hit uh, by a car, and, got, and the mother got hurt pretty badly. And because of the way our immigration system is set up, they had no other social services that they could rely on. Like, they were really, really struggling. And they truly, truly needed this money. It wasn't about them trying to like uh, be balling, balling out and buy rims for their car. Like they needed this money to survive. So I, I was really, really nervous. We picked the jury and we went through the lawsuit and by God's grace, we won. Thank you. I wouldn't have told the story if we lost. I have a whole list of stories never to tell. Now, a lot of times when people hear that I used to be a lawyer, they ask me, do you miss it? Most of the time, the answer is no, especially when I think about all the paperwork. But there are times when I think about the adrenaline rush of a trial that I get a lot of nostalgia. Now, as a lawyer, I was able to work with trials. And trials in law are to get to the bottom of something. Two sides have a dispute, so they have a trial to uncover facts that are just kind of cloudy. But in scripture, we see this word trials used a lot. And in scripture, it's not because two parties are in conflict, uh, but rather something altogether different. We've been in a sermon series on the book of James, and so far in the first chapter, the author James uses this word trials a lot. And what scripture says about your faith is that it is like, it's like gold. Your faith is precious, James says. It's valuable. And here's what James teases out in the beginning of James 1. He says that the situations in your life are sometimes like trials. And when the heat is turned up in your life, it can refine you. Here's how James starts out in the first chapter. He says, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, Scripture makes an outlandish claim. Scripture says over and over and over again that there is a correlation between the trials you face and the maturity that you are able to accomplish and to receive. Years ago, my wife and I went to Sequoia National Park. It's been one of our dreams to hit up every national park in the country and man, Sequoia National Park probably is one of my favorites. When you walk in, it feels like you're walking among giants. And Sequoia was so beautiful, these giant trees, and it really does take your breath away. Now, one of the things that's really fascinating about Sequoias is how much fire 
plays a role in a part of them becoming giants. As a matter of fact, when we were there, there had actually just been some fires and you could still see burns on the bottom of the trees. Now, fires impact sequoias in two ways. Number one, sequoias rely on the fires to release the seeds from their cones. The cones lay on the ground otherwise. But when there is a fire, it releases the seeds and the seeds are able to be released and the soil is prepared and a new sequoia is born. Every sequoia you see is a result of having had a fire. Now, I think this is also true for us in our lives. There are some things right now locked inside of you. It's in a cone. It's in seed form. And the way that God oftentimes unlocks that is through the fires of life. Now, it's not just with uh, releasing the seeds. In order for the sequoias to become the giants that they are, they need the fire to burn away everything else around it that competes for water and nutrients and sunlight. So all of these fires you see happening in Sequoia National Park, what they're doing is they are allowing the sequoia to become a giant because they're burning away everything else that might be competing for nutrients. Now, here's what I know to be true in life. When the fires of life burn away the concerns in our life that are sometimes frivolous, it allows us to deepen. If you think about the things you were worried about in this last week, this last month, when fires hit, you're able to see so much more clearly what matters and what doesn't matter. If you've ever gone through something with someone and a fire hits and you've gone through that fire together, it doesn't matter what y'all are ordering for dinner that night. A lot of the small things that we're worried about, when those things are burned away by the fires of life, it allows us to grow. It allows us to, to mature. So James is giving us some, some key language here that goes back to almost every aspect of the way that we should see our lives. The sequoias cannot become giants unless there's a lot of fire going on in and around them. Now, this is interesting because in a few places in the Bible, like in James, it says the fires of difficulties, instead of destroying you, it can actually make you become a giant. In other words, every single person that you have ever met that is a giant in the faith, that has a faith that you aspire to, I can guarantee you they have one thing in common. They didn't been through some stuff. So what scripture says here in James is that the job that you really wanted to get and you didn't get it and it crushed you, the roommate that you had that said that they were paying their share of the rent and left you high and dry and now you're left holding a bill and wondering where you're going to live, the relationship breakup that you had that had you feeling miserable, the pain in your body from a chronic illness, the disappointment you have in yourself for the failures and inconsistencies in your own character, the disappointment you have from the roller coaster of life. James is saying that all of these things have the ability to transform you. And this is profound because no other faith system will say that. Every other faith system basically says if your life sucks, it just sucks. And you're left to just make it better on your own. And you can do these dances and wear these clothes just to make your life better. But Christianity comes in and says that as painful and as unwanted as these things are, there is a direct correlation between the fires you experience and the maturity that you are able to have. This past week, I was talking to a friend uh, on the phone, a new friend. 
And I don't know why Drake said no new friends. That's wrong. That's, there's a lot of people that, later, that you meet later in life who will be your partners forever. So I was talking to a new friend, and 10 minutes into the phone conversation with this dude, I was like, yo, this dude is really profound. One of these days, I'm sure he might write a book about his own story, but he has gone through some of the most tremendously painful things that I've ever heard about. And this brother is gentle. This brother is empathetic. This brother listens. You can tell when you're speaking that he has entered into your world and he is understanding, he is feeling every word that you are saying. In his life, I wonder if the pain that he has had has transformed him, not to be worse, but to be better. Not that it was a wanted pain or he invited it or would, that he would sign up for it again. But if we will allow it, pain and difficulty in the fires of life can transform us. But Christians are way too over-spiritual most of the time. Uh, and I've heard a lot of people over-spiritualize this scripture and just say, count it all joy. Cancer diagnosis, count it all joy. When Jesus encountered the depth of human sadness, he didn't throw a scripture on top of it. In John 11, Jesus was going to see his friend Lazarus, Lazarus, who they just said had died. And when Jesus saw Lazarus's sisters and siblings and all the people in the town who were mourning, Jesus knew that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Even so, when Jesus, scripture says, when he saw their tears, Jesus wept. The human response, the Christ-like response to an acute and sharp pain is empathy. It's weeping alongside of people. It's not slapping a scripture on it. But this scripture that James writes is not to give people a simple band-aid to really complex issues. It's to raise our understanding up to 30,000 feet and to give us a new framework on how we can see our lives and the difficulties that we may or may not be experiencing. So James tells them this early in the chapter to raise their attention that there's a correlation between the trials you face and the maturity you have. But later in the chapter, James uses the same word trials again, but he uses it in a very different light. Now, sometimes the fires in your life will refine you. They will deepen your faith. But other times, the same fire that refines also destroys or it reveals. Sometimes the fires in our life reveal that we don't have the faith that we thought we did. You thought you were trusting in money until that one bill that you didn't think was coming out came out, and now you don't have anything. And then you're realizing, maybe I don't trust in God to provide as much as I thought I did. So here's where we're going to go for the rest of today. Let's read this passage in James 1, verses 12 through 15. Here's what James says. Blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his or her own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Now, if you were to nerd out in the Bible for a little bit and read James 1 in the Greek, the same word that's being used for trial is being used for tempt. 
So the same word, parasmos, is used for trial by saying, like, blessed is the one who endures trials, and also saying, I am, uh, no one should say, I am being tempted by God. It's the same word. And what is James trying to get at? A test of your faith can be taken two ways. The testing in your faith right now, the situations in your life, are not necessarily going to refine you and make you more like Jesus. The testing of your faith right now is not always going to lead you to a point to where you are refined. Every situation that comes into your life, it will never leave you neutral. And James is now turning our attention to the other side of what would happen if we're not properly equipped. James says, sometimes we can view it as a trial and we can turn to God for help. And so we will persevere. Or we can view it as a meaningless tragedy, a senseless accident, or even worse, a failure on God's part to love and to protect us. And when we do that, when we encounter trials in that way, we blame and attack God for them, accusing God of being malicious, accusing God of punishing us or forgetting us or forsaking us. And if we approach a trial that way, we will not be refined. We will, in fact, give up. Now, James is talking to a group of Christians for whom life was forced on them. They were going through what the early church would know as persecution. And when life was being forced on them and they were going through the fires of life, James didn't want them feeling sorry for themselves. James didn't want them giving up in faith. So James writes them this letter to equip them to go through the fires of life that they were going through. And by extension, I think James is writing this to us almost as a fire suit that equips us to go through the fires in life. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine a couple years ago. He's a fireman. And um, shout out to the fire department, all the men and women who serve. They are truly New York's bravest. And we were at my apartment, and he was talking about my beard. And he was like, yo, J.O., your beard is looking good. And I was like, yeah, it is, man. Thank you, man. <laughs> the challenge was he can't grow a beard, not because the Lord didn't give him facial hair that connects. He actually could grow a, nice, a very nice beard. The reason he couldn't grow a beard is because the equipment that he has as a fireman would not be able to fit over a luscious beard. <laughs> if you think about it, firemen are not just brave, they're equipped. Nobody runs into a burning building with Tim's on. You know what I'm saying? Like they run in fully equipped with a whole suit that protects them from the flames that are all around them. And what James is doing here for the Christians is to let them know there are fires all around you, and I want to mentally and emotionally protect you from the flames going all around you because they can burn you. And you need to be not just brave, not just courageous, not just full of faith, but you actually do need to be equipped. So I want us to consider these words that James is telling us as equipment to put on, armor for you to put on, so that you will be able to endure the inevitable fires that you have gone through, you are going through now, or you will go through in the future. So the first layer of protection that James uh, gives to these people and he gives to us is about our perspective. Here's what he says in verse 13. He says, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. So here's what James is basically saying. You and I need to resist the temptation to blame God for our behavior. 
You and I need to resist the temptation to blame God for our personal behavior. A test or a trial is only really revealing what was already on the inside. So we uh, had our Real Love series a couple of months ago. And in the Real Love series, I did an example that um, I, I took out a water bottle and I turned, up, I turned the cap off and the water bottle was full and I took the water bottle and I shook it. And I asked the crowd, why did water come out this bottle? And everybody said, because you shook it. Then I took out another water bottle and that was empty. I took the cap off and I shook it vigorously and nothing came out. Now here's what James knew, here's what God knows, that sometimes we're quick to forget. The only reason anything ever comes out of us is because it was already inside of us. And sometimes the trials and tests of life, they shake us. They genuinely shake us. But what James is basically saying here in this verse that you should never say I'm being tempted by God since, uh, since God is not tempted by evil and he doesn't tempt anyone. What he's basically saying is what comes out of you is not because of God. Don't blame God on this one. That stuff was already inside of you. The bitterness, the doubt, the complaining, it was already there. This situation, as unpleasant as it is, yes, it shook you. And some, sometimes these shakes are pretty violent. But first things first, James is trying to get us a perspective, a humility that says, Lord, what is coming outside of me right now is stuff that is, stuff that is already inside of me. So uh, shout out to all the women who went to the women's retreat yesterday. We're going to have a men's retreat that's even better. It's going to be... It's not going to be long. It's actually not going to be long. We're going to watch a game and then just leave. But uh, yesterday in the woman's retreat, they, my wife talked about limits. And um, here's how I've seen this scripture right here play out in my life. Every single Friday, uh, I have my own personal Sabbath. One of the things that I've been uh, made aware of is my need to stop working and rely on God to be the Lord of this church and to not run myself ragged into the ground with work. But here's a, here's a problem. I have so many unread emails, and my, my head is down now, because if I owe you an email, that's the shame. That's the shame that won't let me lift my head up. I have so many unread emails, unresponded to things, prayers that I need to be praying for, for more people. There's always more to do. And every single Friday, I'm confronted with making the most bold declaration I could make, which is to say the word enough. I've done enough. And God is going to have to be God, and I am not. I need to step off Jordan's self-proclaimed throne and let God have his rightful place. And trust God with the church. Amen. Thank you for that. But in order for me to do that, I need to realize that what's causing me to overwork is not God. It's not that God is allowing me to see all of the brokenness in our church community, in our community at large. It's not because I have a lot of emails. The real reason is Jordan likes to be well thought of. That's it. I like to be well thought of. I like people, when you think of my name, you think he is a hardworking, diligent, um, really proficient pastor. I don't want people thinking of my name in a negative light. And because I have a desire for people to think well of me, I am tempted to violate God's command in my life. It's not because God is tempting me and forcing me to overwork. That will always be there. There is something already inside of me which is leading me towards what, uh, what James would call sin. 
So in our lives, first, first things first, James basically comes all up in our grill and he tells us, bro, you, you think that it's God that's putting you in a situation or God is making you sin or God gave me this uh, relationship so God knew I was going to spaz out on them because they talk crazy. Uh, James will look at you and say, don't blame God. Here's, what, here's the reason he tells you not to blame God in verse 14. Because each person is tempted when he or she is drawn away and enticed by his or her own evil desire. Now, what James is basically saying, he's using fishing language. And dragged away and enticed comes from fishing language where dragged away is like the act of luring a fish away from their hiding place. So you drag it away. And then you entice it with a worm on a hook. And James is basically saying that the evil desires which are inside of us are the hooks. They, they are the things that draw us out of our hiding, and these are the things that turn and cause us to sin. It's not God. It's you. So the first thing James wants us to know as protection is he wants us to be humble. He wants us to have a level of ownership with the status of our lives and not blame God. Now, you can blame God in a lot of ways that doesn't feel like blaming God. You could blame God by daydreaming about how your life would be different if he gave you different circumstances. As if your behavior or my behavior depends on the circumstances that happen to us. You can never control anything that happens to you, but you can always control your response and your reaction. As a lot of people right now, this can settle some, some marriage arguments. It's not them. Your response is, is you. You did that. So first things first, James tells us uh, to not blame God for what it is. Uh, we need to resist the temptation to blame God for our own dysfunctions. Now, I've seen this play out so many times in my life where, man, I just didn't want what God was calling me to do. Um, I was talking to a friend last week about um, vulnerability. And when I think about my own, my own desires, like, I don't desire to be vulnerable. My friend was talking. He said, Jordan... I've realized over 20 years in ministry that the thing that God wants to use in my life to actually bless people is not my proficiency. It's not me being a great writer. It's my own brokenness shared with the world. And when he said that, I was like truly convicted. And I know convicted is like a Christian word, but I was like, I don't know a better way to say it. Like I was just arrested by the thought that so much of my life, my own desire for my life my over-desire is, is not, the last thing I want to do is be vulnerable. To share the pieces of me that I'm not proud of with the world, with the people who are closest to me, and to, to show that as God's redemptive power in my life, no, I'd rather be a good speaker and tell funny jokes. What James is basically saying is what gets us into trouble is not what's going on around us. It's our own evil desires. Jordan's desire for everyone to speak well of me. And here's what James is saying. James basically uses this word epithemia, which means an over-desire. So in, in the scripture, what James is saying is, it's not that you desire a bad thing, but you want a good thing too much. And because you want a good thing too much, you're willing to violate God's commands in order to do it. You know how this plays out for so many people? You want something. You've been praying to God for something. And God hasn't given to you yet. And you've given God a deadline. You say, God, if I don't have it by this, by this day, I'm going to get it myself. 
And some of us right now in this room are living with the consequences of having made that declaration. James would say, the thing that you want, my brother and my sister, it's a good thing. But it's an over-desire when you're willing to violate God's commands to get it yourself. One of the things that I've, I've realized about myself, when I over-desire people thinking well of me, for example, I'm just unwilling to be honest with myself. I'm unwilling to be honest with you. And what kind of leader would I be if I was always performing and never being honest and vulnerable? Would you want to remain at this church? What God wants to do in your life, what God wants to do in your life is not based on your timelines. It's not based on your definition of when things should happen, how things should happen. And we would do very well to protect ourselves from the over-desire, a desire of a good thing that we want and that we demand. A lot of times I've realized in my own prayer life uh, so many times that they're just demands. Like if God doesn't do this, then that's it. I'm, I'm checking out. I was talking to a friend this week. This was a week of a lot of conversations with friends. <laughs> and uh, my, wife and I were telling, uh, my wife and I were telling him our story. And I was telling a piece of our story when I was um, really struggling with my late wife's cancer diagnosis. And I was praying for God to heal her. And there's a piece that I left out that I was thinking about this morning, actually. And it's, I fully determined that if God did not heal her, I was going to wild out and never go to church a day in my life again. Like, I was like, all right, that's fine. I mean, God, if you don't do it, watch what happens next. I'm going, it, I'm going to be a, an elite level center, like Olympic gold, Usain Bolt. <laughs> I'm never going to church again. Never. Start a church? Yeah, right. That's never happening. I realized that my desire for a good thing, healing is a good thing, became an over-desire. And that desire became a demand and a lens through which I would determine God's faithfulness. So James tells us to be careful because we are drawn away and enticed by our own over-desires that are disordered. So we need to take ownership, what James is saying we need to take ownership for what's going on inside of us in our lives. And the trials in our life, they hurt, yes, but the fires are also revealing what was already there. So James continues with an even more sobering uh, warning. He says, then, in verse 15, then after this desire has conceived. So think about it in terms of like a seed and soil. Now that the seed has been planted and we're watering this joint. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Here's what James is basically saying. Your thoughts now are seeds of your conduct later. Thoughts are seeds of conduct. The things that you are thinking now will one day, uh, if we plant them, they will grow as seeds. And what James is using the language, he basically says, the grandkids of your thoughts now is a form of death later. So James says, first, it's a thought, a desire that has conceived. Then it gives birth to sin. And when this sin is fully grown, this has kids on its own, and it gives birth to death. So let me talk about this in the way that I've seen this play out in uh, so many people's lives. Uh, it's through the comparison trap. The comparison trap. One pastor says it like this, there is no win in comparison. 
Comparison always leads to either pride or discouragement and discontentment. So it starts out with a thought, a desire you have, or a desire, or as James would say, an over-desire you have for something. And that over-desire, when you don't get it, turns to bitterness. Bitterness has kids, and it turns into discontentment. I was uh, <laughs> thinking about a meeting I had months ago, and this only probably applies to pastors. And um, I was talking to a friend, and he was like, yeah, man, we're getting ready to move into our new church building. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And in my brain, I was thinking about the setup volunteers that we have here at Renaissance. Shout out to PS76, they had a great home. But as he was talking about this 30,000-foot brand-new building that they had, the only thing I could think about was comparing myself to him. And I'm like, Lord, we've been grinding. We've been grinding for eight years. And then he continued the story like, yeah, man, somebody from our, somebody from our churches gave us like $3 million, and we don't even have like a mortgage. I was like, oh, praise God, man. God is good, ain't he? He is good. And the whole meeting, when everybody else was celebrating, I was bitter. I was starting to form accusations against God in my brain. Like, God, the temptation was, if you loved me, if you were faithful to us, then why not give us a couple million dollars and a brand new building? <laughs> left unchecked, left unchecked, listen to this, left unchecked, that bitterness which is a thought. At that moment, I have to choose what to do with my thoughts. I always need to process and allow my thoughts to be transformed, as Paul says, to be taken captive and subjected, to not just let them run free willy in our brains. Because if I do not take that thought subject, what's going to happen is it's going to grow into discontent. And then now I'm going to be looking at everything we do at Renaissance without a building and, think, and feeling discontent and accusing God of not being faithful to us because we don't have what I saw someone else had. Now, let me tell you a couple things about the gram. Instagram is a liar. Most of the smiles, the perfectly manicured tiles that you see are lies. The people that are the happiest and most braggadocious on Instagram often have the messiest lives. A couple of years ago, I watched a post from a woman. It was during Mental Health Awareness Month. Uh, it was a post that someone put up about a woman, and it said, this is a face of mental health. And it was a woman who was smiling and laughing, and everything looked so great, and she took her own life that day, that night. One of the reasons the comparison trap is so deadly and so unhelpful, particularly by comparing ourselves to friends and people and associates that you know on social media, is because you actually don't know the real deal of their story. If you knew the whole story, you wouldn't even be jealous. If you knew the struggle behind that, you wouldn't want that. Another reason that we should never fall victim to the comparison trap is because it's always unhelpful. It's always unhelpful because it reduces God down to our level. And it says, God, your faithfulness in my life will be determined by this finite circumstance, how this thing plays out on my timeline. Now go and do it. Whenever we start to evaluate God's goodness, God's faithfulness, based on our comparing ourselves to someone else, man, we are bound for disappointment. And what James is telling us in this specific scenario, we can probably give 20 more examples, is that if you get caught in a comparison trap, that little seed of bitterness will turn into discontent. And that discontent 
will now not just be a little tree. It will be the most remarkable thing about your life. I've seen people over this past eight years which have left the faith. Most of the time, they have left the faith over unanswered prayers that they prayed. They wanted God to do something badly, a good thing in their life. And when God didn't do it, they left. Here's what James is saying. That situation in your life, it didn't cause you to walk away. It revealed a circumstantial faith in your life that you were only really after God for what he could give you. And trust me, I've been there. I know that feeling. But what James wants for us is for us to not be subject to the wind of our day or be subject to our circumstances in the moment, but to have a faith that has a true anchor, an anchor that is more profound and more important than just how your day is going on any given, any given day. So the, a warning from Scripture is in Hebrews 2 and 1, and if you're looking for a memory verse this week, here's a good one. Here's what the writer says in Hebrews 2 and 1. For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. All you need to do to drift is to do nothing. One of the challenges we've been having for people at Renaissance is to read through the book of James alongside of us. And we're going to be going through the book of James all summer. And my hope is that everybody at Renaissance is reading through the book of James at least once a week. And what James will tell you and what Scripture tells you is to pay attention to what you have heard. Pay attention so that you do not drift away. Now, one of the things that protects us from, belief, from the fires of life, the ultimate thing is believing in God's goodness. Here's what James says in verse, verses 16 through 18. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, in this last part of the, the verses, what James is using is basically language from astronomy. And he says that God is not, God is the father of lights, and he doesn't change like shifting shadows. So basically, uh, the light that we experience now is seasonal. So 5 p.m. in December is very different than 5 p.m. in June. And every single season in life will present to you shifting lights and different shadows based on our position in the solar system at any given time of the year. And that the light we receive, the way we experience our, our world, is dependent on our season. What James is saying is, God is God's goodness is not seasonal. It doesn't change. It's not circumstantial. And we would do extremely well to remember that God is not, uh, God doesn't change based on our circumstances. I, I was talking to a friend years ago. Uh, I was actually watching something on his social media years ago, and I was like so, so, so mad. I was going through a really difficult time in my life, and he posted something online. It, just, it was a benign comment. He said, oh, man, my wife's plan just landed safely. God is good. And I'm not an internet troll, so I didn't respond to anything. I'm not a keyboard killer or anything like that. <laughs> but I wanted to say, Bro, is God's goodness tied to the flight pattern, Delta's flight pattern? Like, if the fact that your wife's plane landed on time, like, God, okay, I don't know if he was going to be good. It landed on, at 2.38? Okay, now he's good. So often our life is actually spent like that. 
We're spent measuring God's goodness based on our changing circumstances. And what James is trying to do is take us up 30,000 feet to see a goodness in God that does not depend on our circumstances. Now, one author in scripture, Paul, says it like this. Whenever you are struggling to believe in God's goodness, and I know some of you right now are struggling to believe in that. You've heard the scripture, and you said, Jordan, I want to believe in it, but I don't know if I can. Paul will tell you this. He would ask you this one simple question. If God did not spare his own son for you, then how will he not, along with him, graciously give you all things? And when we think back to the cross, God's declaration to us that I will withhold nothing good from you, that is a thing that will give us endurance to trust in his goodness. Not in how your day went, not in how your week went, not in how your month went. The best of circumstances, at the very best, they're, they're transient. Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. James knew that if we don't believe in a God that is unchangingly, unchangingly good, we will fall prey to the idea that other things are better. And James is trying to protect us from that. Now, I'll end it on this. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, this thing. The things in your life that you were really excited about and really wanted, the things that you over-desired, Scripture would call that an idol. And the idols always, 100% of the time, they over-promise and they under-deliver. They tell you that once you get me, your life is going to be amazing. And then you get it and you're like, it's cool. The job that you thought was going to be so perfect, the apartment that you thought was going to be absolutely wonderful, there's bed bugs six months later. <laughs> Don't say amen to that because people are going to start moving away like, oh, really, bed bugs, huh? The relationship that you thought would make you feel meaningful will only realize, show you how messy people are. Idols always overpromise and underdeliver, And God doesn't want us putting judging his goodness based on that. So I want to pray for us right now, particularly for the people who are going through the fires of life. And, and you are aware that this fire is revealing things about you that you'd rather not see. Let me pray for you right now. God, our Father, I pray for my sisters and my brothers in this room right now, Lord, who have seen themselves diagnosed through this scripture in James. I pray that they will see that as your kindness to them, that you do not want them or desire them to have a, a flimsy faith, but a real faith, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that they would turn to you full of their doubts, full of their questions, full of their uncertainties, and simply say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room as we move forward in worship. I pray that this song that we are about to sing that declares your goodness will be a declaration of faith that takes root in their hearts. And that declaration of faith would give birth to faith and faithful living. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.